Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder of Financing Solutions. Uh, for those of you who don't know Financing Solutions, we are a leading provider of easy-to-set-up lines of credit for small businesses. And I will be your host for today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Um, if you don't have a line of credit for your business, I would suggest you really look at it, regardless if it's from us or from somebody else. Over my 25 years of being in business, I've always had a line of credit. Um, it's something that just makes helps you sleep at night. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about our line of credit, please go to fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. And a little bit about me, for those of you who don't know me, I um, over the last 25 plus years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range, including two companies on the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. I still have three companies right now. They're, uh, two of them are at the $25 million range, and then I have a smaller one. I love learning from people with business experience. So I think it's the best thing to do is love, uh, learn from people who've done it before. And today I'm very excited to be speaking with Patty Block from the Block Group. Patty Block is a business advisor, pricing expert, author, and speaker. She works exclusively with women, business owners, experts, strategically fine tune their operations attract right fit clients, and boost their revenue. She firmly believes business success and wealth in the hands of women elevate society as a whole. In her book, Your Hidden Advantage, excuse me, Your Hidden Advantage, Unlock the Power to Attract Right Fit Clients and Boost Your Revenue, Patty reveals a new perspective and proven practical solutions guiding everyone to unleash their inner power to run their business with more confidence, profit, and joy. Patty, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, I'm going to let you in a little secret. Um, I have always felt that uh, women are smarter. They make better business people. And I always, um, I, I always have hired a lot of women. I just think that they make better, uh, for me, they make better employees. Um, and they, to me, uh, they, it's not just women, but I think anybody who has to struggle, um, works harder. And, and I think that's obvious and, and typically, um, so, you know, today's topic, although it's not geared toward women and I, I know your practice is geared toward women, uh, but today's topic, the secret to attracting right fit clients and boosting your revenue it's going to be a great topic, regardless, of course, if you're a woman, if you're a male or, or whatever. So tell us a little bit about what is the secret to attracting right fit clients? You know, that's really a challenge. It's a challenge for everyone because of what I call the hope factor. So think back to when you were first dating, maybe middle school or high school. And didn't you think that everyone that was showed interest in you was, quote, the one? Mm. We all did, and we all thought everyone was the one. And if they weren't, we could turn them into the one. And that's what we do in our businesses as well. We really feel as though, especially women, we feel as though the stakes are really high and that anyone who expresses interest in working with us 
must be an ideal buyer. And we all know they're not. So we end up talking to a lot of the wrong people, thinking we can turn them into the right buyer. So because that's one of the biggest roadblocks for women business owners, it's one of the reasons I wrote Your Hidden Advantage. And that is the answer to the secret. It's really discovering what your hidden advantage is and then unlocking that so that you can do four things. You can deal with any limiting beliefs that you have. You can attract those right fit buyers. You can assess your value and price for value. And you can communicate effectively. It's really frustrating when our anxiety goes up and we become tongue-tied And that's what I teach is how can you communicate much more effectively? And in a former life, I was a political consultant and a lobbyist. And I used to train candidates and and other lobbyists in terms of how we could be most effective. So that is what I now teach women business owners and dealing with your emotions so that you can be effective. Yeah, I think... um I mean, I had two things to add to that. The first thing is, you know, 20 plus years ago, you know, it was either somebody or a lecture I went to or a book I read where, you know, someone said is, you know, tell me about your perfect client, right? So it it takes something to prompt you to then say, okay, this is my perfect client. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is how then you need to question, is your assumption correct? Is it really true? Is this my perfect client? Because, you know, listen, in order to, and now if I were to ask you for your consulting practice, right? Tell me your perfect client. Did you ever watch the show X-Files? Yeah, yeah, sure. Do you remember Dana Scully? Yes. Okay. So Dana Scully, in the iteration of the X-Files, is not a business owner. But other than that, she is my ideal buyer. She is highly educated. She has her identity very wrapped up in the work that she does. She believes in evidence-based, not only research, but she has to see it to believe it, but she's open to new things. She is very dedicated and committed, almost to a fault, and she often doesn't put herself first. She puts everyone else first in how she operates in the world, and that is very much my ideal buyer. I also want to make a distinction between an ideal buyer and an ideal client because I think an ideal client does not happen by accident, and that happens when you start with an ideal buyer you take them through your sales journey, you help them be ready to buy, and then when you do the onboarding and start with a new client, in many ways you're training them to be an ideal client. So it's a very intentional process in my opinion. And I work with women business owners that are experts in their fields, very much like Dana Scully, and highly educated, high achieving, uh, what I call a good girl. And I mean that in, from the standpoint that I grew up as a good girl, following the rules, don't make a noise, don't make a mess, 
do everything that you're supposed to do to achieve. And at some point, we get the gut punch of, I thought I did everything right. My gut punch came when I was 35 years old, had three little kids, a thriving business as a political consultant and a lobbyist, and a surprise divorce, and realized very quickly that I was not going to have any financial support, and I needed to close my company, get a job, because I needed health insurance. And at that time, you couldn't buy health insurance. So making that shift in order to stabilize things for my family was critical for me. And I didn't have the luxury of time or figuring out how I could structure it differently. So again, I thought, you know, I did everything my family expected me to do. I did everything, quote, right. I grew up, got my education, started my career, got married, had children, raised my family, and my world turned upside down. So many of us have experienced something similar to that. And we go out and start our careers, and we think we're going to have every opportunity. And we realize we don't. And it's, it may be gender-related, it may not be. But we realize that there's something that is an obstacle that we didn't anticipate. And we thought life was going to be a straight line, but it never is. And that has been my experience. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go over mine too, but you know, for me too, and all the businesses I've had it, you know, I think the, um, I would tell you the number one biggest thing that I am always trying to figure out is who is my perfect prospect. Let's use that word better than client. Okay. Okay. Cause you know, you want to have this, you, every business needs to have a lead generation system. And that's the biggest thing that most people don't figure out, right? They, they, they don't put time in that. They think, oh, well, clients will just show up. And that's not the way it works. For, for like for financing solutions, uh, you know, my best clients are with their small businesses or nonprofits where this is for 80% of our clients or our prospects, I should say. Their revenues between 1 million and 3 million. They have uneven cash flow. All right, there. Um, they have an owner with a with a, a pretty decent credit score. All right, um, they are they are not in three states because we don't work in California, we don't work in Nevada, and we don't work in New Jersey. All right, and um, that's you know that's that's kind of the 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 client that really helps. I mean, that type of person narrow. I mean that type of. Uh, that really narrows it down for us as to really what what works. If someone's over seven million dollars in revenue, there it's also good to know what is not a good client for you, right? So uh, clients that are over seven million dollars in revenue are typically not good clients for us, all right. And I'm not going to get into the details as to why. You know, um, clients that are under four hundred thousand dollars in revenue are typically not are, are not good clients for us. You know, so. Um, so that, you know, and then there's other nuances to it. So, you know, I think the point being is to, in order to understand, you know, your, your perfect prospect, thus your perfect client, you got to really narrow that stuff down because, you know, like, you know, we, we do a lot of SEO work, a lot of uh, search engine optimization work. We've done direct mail, we've done trade publication, advertising, uh, banner ads, all this other stuff. And a lot of times I'm trying to figure out, um, who to try to knock out 
of who's not a good client or a good prospect, especially when it comes to search and paid for search, you know, because in paid for search, they're clicking on my ad and I'm getting charged. And I don't want that. I want them to self, um, what's the right word? Self-identify. I self-identify who's a good fit for me, right? And then it saves me time on the back end too, right? I don't, and we don't end up calling that person and wasting our time. So, you know, um, so in, in general, how do you help clients really identify the secret, their secret, you know, their secret type of client, the, the right fit client? How do you help them? Well, you're right. We start by defining. Hmm. And if you're defining a client, you're kind of jumping ahead. So that's why I use the term buyer is who do you want to attract to even start that conversation? And so defining it is critical, but not just demographic, right? It's one thing to say male, female, they live in these neighborhoods or they Uh, own these types of companies. That's fine on a surface level, but we want to go deeper into, uh, and also I think that's why choosing a fictional character can be really powerful Mm. because unless you hadn't seen X-Files, you already have a visual of who I'm describing. And if you watch the show, you then know how she behaved, what she thought, how she moved in the world. And that is very much how my clients move in the world and what they care about. So having that definition that goes deeper is really important. Then the key is knowing where to find those people. To your point, whether you're using ads or you're trying to attract them with your messaging, your website, all of those methods. And to your exact point, you're using multiple methods. There's no one size fits all. And we also know the market changes. And the market is going through a really significant change right now. Lots of people are worried about inflation, about the banks, about all kinds of you know, world events. So there's a lot of concern. And you, as an entrepreneur, my view is you need to be willing to tolerate some risk as an entrepreneur, you need to be able to um, not just roll with the punches, but anticipate some of what could be happening in the future. And we have lots of futurists now. You know, 20 years ago, there weren't that many people giving us clues about what could be happening in the next 10 to 20 years. Now there are. And it depends on who you believe and what you believe. But those limiting beliefs can keep you stuck. So if you want to put your head in the sand and pretend that the metaverse is not out there, that web 3.0 is not on the horizon, that we're not going to see significant changes in how we operate our businesses, you have the choice of ignoring that, or you have the choice of embracing that and preparing for it. And one of the things I think is so fun about being a business owner is that you get to experiment and try things out, whether it's ads and messaging and how you're going to position yourself in the market. So let me go back to your original question. For women, one of the biggest challenges is we are waiting for the phone to ring. And part of that is because of how we grew up. 
We're not really raised to be breadwinners. So we're waiting for, we, we kind of feel like it's a popularity contest and that people should just get it, how great we are, how great our results are. And we're waiting for the phone to ring. So when I start working with my clients, one of the things that we do is flip that around and start looking at outbound methods of where do you find your ideal buyers? Could it be in professional organizations? And one of the big challenges is we tend to go where we're most comfortable. So if you're an accountant, it's very likely that you're involved in professional organizations with a room full of other accountants. But if you chose a niche like commercial real estate, and you started getting involved in organizations that were specific to commercial real estate, that's where you're going to find your buyers. So again, as women, and I think sometimes men fall into this trap of you go where you're comfortable, you surround yourself with your colleagues, maybe your competitors, and you're not necessarily going where you're going to find your buyers. So that's where we start. And then the second piece of that is how are you going to communicate? And that is a huge challenge because as women were taught, you don't talk about yourself because it's considered bragging. I'm based in Texas and we have a saying here that it's not bragging if it's true. And helping women kind of get over that issue of we don't want to talk about ourselves, we feel like we're bragging, and we sure don't want to talk about money. And again, it's how we're raised. So we have to work through what they believe, what my clients believe, what's limiting them and keeping them stuck. And then individually, I work with them to address those challenges and get them comfortable. And communication in particular is like a muscle that you can exercise and build. And being consistent with your messaging, that's the other thing is we often feel like we need to create new things all the time. If you are consistent in your messaging and your messaging is working, stick with it. And even though you're tired of telling the same story 15 to 100 times, do it anyway, because there is an audience out there that needs to hear your message and they haven't heard it yet. If, if, um, if the blind spot for women entrepreneurs is, uh, let me see if I can sum a, summation, uh, do a summation of what you were saying. Um, they're afraid to talk about money. They try, they try to, you know, they th- expect people just to come, you know, um, they don't, you know, they don't talk about, they don't quote unquote brag. Uh, what's the blind spot for men? Now, again, we're stereotypic typing, right? So, you know, we're talking about 80% of the, maybe whatever it is, but majority of the women could be that way, but there's also plenty of women who are not, right? So, but for the men, what is the blind spot for, uh, for men entrepreneurs? Well, again, I want to be careful about generalizing, but I think because men are raised to be breadwinners and there's a lot of pressure put on men. So I was raised with two brothers, and there was a lot of expectation and pressure put on my brothers that I did not experience because the expectations for me were different. Now, whether that is chauvinistic, perhaps, 
whether that is unfair, perhaps. I think the blind spot for men when they're developing business is maybe not tuning in. So women have a real strength in their powers of perception and intuition. And again, we're raised to develop those. Then we're told when we go into the workforce that we're not supposed to use those. We're supposed to suppress our powers of perception and intuition because it's not professional. And the, your powers of perception are about tuning into others. Your power of intuition is tuning into yourself. And I think if there's a blind spot for men, that's where it is. Okay. It's not always tuning into yourself and not always tuning in to your potential buyer. And feeling very confident, which is great, but continuing to talk instead of listen. Yeah, it's good, good stuff. I'm sure we can go deeper and deeper into that. You know, I, I'll kind of add a little bit to what you said. And, and um, I haven't thought a lot about this, but I do remember a long, long, long time ago, I went to this conference. I used to go every year. And they always had these uh, an economist at this conference and every year I would go to the conference and they would predict what was going to happen in the future, right? And so one year, this is like the seventh year I'd gone to the conference. I, this is a large conference. I was never afraid to ask questions. And I, rose, I raised my hands and I said, you know, you're always predicting. It's always a different economist. I said, you're always predicting what's going to happen. How do you do against your predictions? And the, and the guy goes to me, he goes, well, I don't really know. So, you know, because I always found that they would predict something and it didn't happen. And so I think that I, whether I read this or I just learned this, you know, I, I'm going to be a contrarian here, which is not unusual. And that is, I think your business just needs to solve the problems that are occurring today. And you just don't need to figure out what's going to happen 5, 10, 15 years from now and solve those problems. It's hard enough to solve the problem that's going on right this second. Because honestly, it, it, it really depends on what, what industry you're in. I mean, I understand if you're in a trendy industry, maybe that change, changes much quicker. But honestly, if you're in a majority of the businesses, things don't change for three to five years. So you just got to work on what's, what, what is going on now and solve those problems. Um, you know, and I agree with what you're saying, uh, you know, about men's, men's blind spots to me. Uh, and I don't, I don't, it's not really business related, but it's amazing. I mean, I belong to this group of entrepreneurs that have been together for over 25 years. There's nine of them. We, we, get, a, we get together for five hours every month. And they're just horrible about talking about their feelings, about what's going on in their business. They're, 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 but they're terrible about being able to go inside themselves. Horrible at it. It's just, you know, you know, they keep things very superficial. You know, yeah, they definitely talk about sports or talk about their kids and stuff like that. But ask them about how they're feeling that, that they, they're, they're a deer in the headlight. But whereas, uh, you know, a, 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 and I think that affects them in the ability to, to uh, manage and lead others, you know, because they, they, they're not, 
people person, so to speak. They're like, you have a job to do. I have a job to do. Go do it. I don't think it's old school, honestly. I think that's kind of the way, whereas women are much more in touch with, you know, what's going on in your personal life, what's going on in their personal life, you know, those. And I think that makes women naturally better relationship uh, builders, which leads them to be better managers and eventually leaders. So uh, what do you think about that? I agree with you. Again, I think the way men are raised, it can be very lonely when you don't realize what's happening in your own head and you don't talk about it. Women tend to go the opposite. We go sometimes to the extreme and we often treat our employees like family and get too involved yeah. in their personal lives. Yeah. So, you know, you have to find that balance, whether you're male or female, you have to find that balance of having a professional environment where you care deeply about your employees and they care about you and the success of your business. So I do think it's that balance that you have to find. Uh, I have a client who used to call her management style kumbaya. She said, you know, it's like we all sit around in a circle and hold hands and sing songs. And and that worked for a while, and then it didn't. Yeah. And she really wanted to change her management style, but not in a way that would alienate her employees. So that type of work, you know, a lot of what I'm doing when I work with my clients, I'm definitely helping them fix their pricing. Because as women, we undervalue ourselves and we underprice our services. Yeah. And I even have a name for that. It's called the broken cookie effect. And when I was growing up, my mom made these fabulous cookies. The whole house smelled good. It was warm. The cookies were gooey. And all my life, I watched my mom eat the broken cookies. But it wasn't until I was a teenager that I even thought to ask her, why do you only eat the broken cookies? Do they taste better? And she laughed and said, no, I eat the broken cookies so you can have the whole ones. And that memory came rushing back to me not too long ago when I was trying to put words around this pattern that I was seeing. In the decades that I've worked with women business owner experts, I have seen this almost in every one. And that is we undervalue ourselves, we underprice our services, and then we overdeliver. So our profit goes poof. And this image of my mom popped in my head and I realized that's what we're doing as women. We're bringing that spirit of self-sacrifice into our businesses and everyone else gets the whole cookie, our staff, our families, our clients, and we live on crumbs. Yeah. How do you uh, know uh, what price to charge? You know, so let's say you're, so you, you're consulting with one of your, you're coaching one of your clients, you're co consulting with them. They buy into what you're saying. Okay. Or even if they didn't, they say, well, you know, maybe you are right. You know, I, you know, how do I go out and try to figure out what I should be charging? What's right. your advice then? Right. Well, keep in mind that every service company is guessing. They're guessing on their pricing and a hundred percent of the time women are guessing wrong. Okay. I can't speak for men, but I know that women are guessing wrong because we start with our prices low, partially because we undervalue ourselves and partially because we're scared. 
And then we want to leave our pricing alone because it just feels easier. So we paint ourselves into this corner and fear keeps us there. So the way that I work through this is starting with those beliefs that may be keeping us stuck. Like if you believe you need to offer a discount in order for somebody to buy, that's a limiting belief. If you believe you need to price low in order to be fair, quote unquote, to your clients, that's a limiting belief. So there's lots and lots of them. And those limiting beliefs impact our behavior and what we do with our pricing. So we start by developing a pricing model. The only one who can determine your pricing and if it's, quote, fair and if it's effective is your buyer. And because we're often talking to the wrong people, a lot of those people are price shopping. And price shoppers typically are not ideal buyers. So, and none of my clients want to be a low-cost leader, right? Very few companies do. So if you want to keep a boutique practice, if you want to work with clients who appreciate you, are happy to pay what you're charging, and understand the value that you bring, then building a pricing model and having that rationale behind it so that you stop guessing, and then you test it in the market. And you make sure that you're talking to the people you want to work with, not just those that are coming to you. And what you'll find is as humans, we tend to equate low quality and low price and high quality and high price. So if you're pricing artificially low, people may perceive you as low quality and be less likely to work with you. Yeah, I'm going to add to what you're saying too, and that is... um Okay, the big the biggest misconception that I see untrained or even trained uh, that's not the right word but un- that that people who have small businesses think that they need to charge less and that in fact a small business needs to charge more than the major competitors. And because they typically can deliver better service and more personable service. So if you are trying to compete on price you and you're going lower, you are making a huge mistake because you're undervaluing what a small business really brings to the table. And so you actually need to charge more. And then the, the second thing is I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a couple of examples. I've been this way my whole life. So, you know, I started the first eight years working for Xerox and, uh, and Xerox was very prestigious when I was working for them. Um, I, I was one of their top sales reps in the country. And I actually started uh, with, uh, there's 5,000 sales reps in the country and I started with 13 new hires. And those 13 new hires, what I really noticed was um, I would go in at the list price and I never, ever discounted. I just didn't do it. And I always, it, it would force me into talking about the great benefits of the company and the product in and, and undercovering needs and better salesmanship. That's what it, 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 allowed me to. Now, what was interesting was I was always selling at 
the list price. I never discounted. And yet all the other people in my group, they would always drop the price very, very quickly and immediately. And I would always do better. I would always have higher sales. I would always have a a higher close ratio. And yet I sold at a 20% premium than everybody else. Five years later, 12 of those people no longer worked for the company. And I, I continued to stay. So it was like an inverse relationship that what you think, you think, oh, well, if I drop my price 20%, I'm going to win more often. And it wasn't true. So I, you know, I kind of, I agree with what you're saying. Pricing is a very important thing. And, and so I, you know, I just, I'm not a, I, I believe in big margins. I believe in, you know, selling at a, at a, at a, a, a higher price because it forces you to be a better company. And at the end of the day, like, I'll get, and this is the best example. And I think we can all understand this. You ever go to a discount uh, clothing store and you see something that's really nice in the rack and it's dirt cheap. And I tell you what, do you really, you really wear that piece that much? Or do you really wear those shoes that much? You don't, but then you go to another place and you pay full list price because it's a great brand and it has great quality to it and it fit you perfect and you wear it all the time, but yet it costs two to three times more. Which one do you get more enjoyment out of? All right. And so it price is not important. It's about the quality, the service, their brand, the reputation, all those things are much more important. And, uh, you know, by the way, a good salesperson really helps you understand that too, right? Well, that's right. But also that's what I was going to add to what you said. I agree with what you said. And I often use a retail example. I use Walmart, Macy's and Neiman Marcus. You can buy a blouse in all three stores, but which woman shops in which store depends on what's important to her and how much money she can spend. So I would agree with everything you said. And I would add to that it depends on your buyer. So someone who's going to spend more, maybe full price on a retail item, you're right. They are going to value it more. They valued it more in order to even buy it. So they're going to value it more when they own it. And that is, we make the mistake of thinking that if we believe, if I believe that I, I never buy anything retail, I only buy things that are discounted. And I only shop on price. If that's the way I think, then I tend to think everybody else thinks that way. And that is a huge mistake. It's true. Oh, boy. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm actually, I, I'm weird in that. I I hate sales. I hate discounts. I just, you know, I just, you know, someone tells me something's on sale. I'm like, I don't, I don't really care. Right? Yes. I just don't. But, you know, anyway, finish what you're saying. But- Lots and lots of people are looking at for those discounts and they feel like they have won a treasure hunt yeah. when they find something that's super high quality that was discounted. And that's fine, but that's not my ideal buyer. And no. my guess is that's not yours. Yeah. No, it's not. And I also tell you the truth. I see. So I, I come from a family, a very humble upbringing. I have two older sisters who I love. Um, and, um, and my mom you know, 
they, my mom and dad, you know, scrimped and saved. And, you know, my mom would go, you know, three miles to save five cents on a can of peas. Right. And it would drive me nuts. And I, I, you know, as I, when I got older, I said, I'm never going to care about saving five cents on a can of peas. And, you know, but whereas my sisters, they all, um, very concerned with price. Right. And, and they, they, you know, they, they, they all did well financially, but they still took on that, um, symbolism or that, or that action that my parents instilled. And I went the complete opposite direction. Right. And what I've seen is their decision-making process has of being cheap or looking for the, for a good buy has hurt their ability to dream their ability to risk take there's a correlate and then my ability to not care about the price of something has allowed me to do to dream to to uh to go for it to be a risk taker um and and uh, so listen there's there's not one right way and wrong way. That's not what I suggest. I'm just saying is the way you look at money and pricing has a direct effect on your business. And if I could add to that, that is the broken cookie effect in action. Yeah. That is exactly what I have seen over and over for women. They tend to emulate their role models which is what your sisters have done. They believe certain things. And you said it so well when you said it really impacts the amount of risk you're willing to take, how you see the world, how you operate inside of it, what you think about money. One of the exercises that I spend a lot of time on is helping my clients understand their relationship with money. Because remember, money is a symbol. And helping my clients Go back and figure out what is it that influenced you as you were growing up, good and bad. What is your relationship with money? What do you like and not like? And what do you want to change? And what is working to your advantage? So a lot of that, you know, I I just wanted to jump out of my seat when you were describing how your sisters have emulated your mom, because that is the broken cookie effect. Yeah. I, I listen. One of the first books I read was a book, a biography about Sam Walton, right? Sam Walton of, of Walmart. Okay. And Sam Walton was famous for basically living in the same house for 40 or 50 years. He um, drove the same car. He, um, he, he flew himself as a billionaire, he flew himself himself to sites in his own little plane. I mean, you know, for a billionaire, that's unusual. And, you know, and so the thing that's unique about Sam Walton is that here you have somebody who's very cost conscious in his personal life, but yet is a billionaire. 
And you have this dichotomy for a guy who's just driven to make money, but also to work on the other end and not spending it. Now, I think the key lesson here with Sam Walton was he created this company where its culture was low prices, low prices. So you, Sam Walton could not be a guy who had 15 homes, a Learjet, 18 cars, and had built a company that was based on low prices. But his strategy, and I, I always believe this, a big company, multinational company strategy it's completely different than a small business, you know? And again, small business should not be about the lowest price, you know? And you're making a huge mistake by doing that. So, Patty, we have about a minute left. Why don't you wrap it up for us? I would. Um, so the, the idea of your hidden advantage is finding your unique attribute or, um, or how you operate that is a huge advantage for you, but you may not recognize it. That's why it's called hidden. It's often hidden from ourselves. So if you'd like to learn more, you can visit yourhiddenadvantage.com, yourhiddenadvantage.com. And I offer several bonuses that are companion pieces to the book. And I also have an accelerator program that will help you implement what you learn in the book and walk you through some of what we've talked about today in terms of finding your right fit buyers and boosting your revenue so that you can run your business with more, more confidence, more profit, and more joy. Good stuff. I learned a lot today. I knew it was going to be an interesting topic. I'd like to thank so very much Patty Block from the Block Group for coming on today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast or any of our other ones, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And please also give us a review if it's five stars. It really helps us get a word out. The Entrepreneur MBA podcast has become very, very popular. And um, those reviews really help us uh, to move up the rankings. So we really appreciate that. Um, if you're looking for a, a line of credit for your, for your business, please feel free to visit our website at fscreditline.com. Again, that's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com, or you can call us at 862-207-4118. And again, I want to thank Patty for coming on today. You know, I think that at the end of the day, what I really, um, I hope that everybody's gotten um a good handle on today is that you really have to understand your pricing and your pricing strategy, your competitors pricing. You have to understand your why, why is it that we charge what we do? Why is it that um, we do what we do? There's, you know, that, that answer, the ask, ask, asking and answering those why questions is so important. And if you really want, you know, listen, wouldn't you rather work 40% less and make 40% more. I mean, and I think the pricing is all revolves around that. So just keep that all in mind, everybody. Have a great day. It was a great podcast. <laughs>